0: The plan is to try to finish Romans uh, 1 in the next two weeks and then to take two weeks off. Uh, those of you who are familiar with Romans realize that verses 18 and forward, they get pretty rough and uh, where the Apostle Paul speaks of the, the bad news of the gospel. And I think it's going to be great to be able to take a couple weeks off of all of that and maybe look at a psalm and perhaps a maybe two psalms uh, for the Christmas season and look at... Um, Maybe a passage from Isaiah. I haven't made up my mind yet, but this morning we look at Romans 1, verses 15 through 17. I trust you have found a place. Uh, Follow along. Paul writes, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Heavenly Father, we call on you this morning, Lord. We look to you and we ask, Father, that you would teach us and guide us and lead us, instruct us. Father, as has already been said in this service, we can have the most brilliant servant and the most brilliant uh, Uh, delivery. But Father, it is worthless and next to nothing without you. Father, the real work is yours. And Father, we look to you and we lay our our hearts as bare as we're able before you, that Lord, you you would instruct us and and lead us and guide us this morning, Father. Uh, Encourage us, rebuke us if necessary, encourage us and make us more like Jesus as a result of this exercise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. I trust that everyone in the room would resonate with this statement. I'll put it in the first person, but we could we could put it in the second person easily enough. Uh, Let's put it in the first person. Uh, When I see people hurting, I want to help them. We could put it in the second person. When you see people hurting, you want to help them. I was proud of the fact that when I wrote this sentence, you know, a few days ago, I, was, I knew that I could, I could say that this would resonate with all of you. Uh, because I know that this is your heart. When you see people hurting, you want to help them, don't you? And we see people hurting everywhere, don't we? <laughs> all over the place. It's, I mean, we see brokenness everywhere we turn. I saw a woman being interviewed on the news Friday evening. And the news crew was at the Tanger Outlets out in uh, Washington uh, County, there, out just outside of Pittsburgh, and they were covering the, the, you know, the the Black Friday stuff. And this woman had been standing in a checkout line at one of the stores for an hour and fifteen minutes, and they they interviewed her, and what she said to the news crew really struck me she had talked about being in the line and the whole time she was there she hasn't been able to get out of one store Uh, but this is what the season is all about and I thought to myself really really she appeared to be an upper middle-class person with probably plenty of means at her disposal but really this is what the season is all about piling up at the Tanger outlets and charging a gazillion dollars on your credit cards. Can anybody remember what you got for Christmas last year? Really? I mean, if there was something really special, you might remember it. But do you really remember? You might remember last year, but how about the year before? Do you remember? There's brokenness everywhere. Everywhere we turn, and I... I I share that with you because the brokenness comes in all kinds of shapes and forms, doesn't it? A lot of times we think of brokenness. We think of somebody who's addicted to heroin, or we think of somebody who's, you know, incarcerated, or we think of we think of things along that line, you know. But uh, broken, broken, there's plenty of brokenness in the checkout line at the Tanger outlets, isn't there? It's blindness. It's in the form, you know, brokenness. It comes in the form of addiction for sure, abuse, crime, dysfunction, hopelessness and the like. Or it can come in the form of accumulating stuff. It can come in that form as well. But one thing that all of it has in common, it has this one common denominator, and that's unbelief. It's, it's blinding and it's deadly unbelief. And the cure, of course, is the gospel, in our text this morning, we find the Apostle Paul, we find him to be eager. If you look at verse 15 with me, notice what Paul says here. He says that he's eager. Normally, when we, we, we see Romans one sixteen and 17, we kind of see them together, you know. Uh, I, I, I think this is kind of unusual to take verses 15, 16, and 17 together, as I, especially as I've been studying these passages. I mean, verses 16 and 17 are often kind of isolated together, but they're not in isolation from one another, are they? Uh, I think it's Crossway Books or one of the Bible companies is producing a Bible now that has taken all the versification out of it and has taken all of the, uh, the subtitles out of it. And you open it up and it says, the, Paul's letter to the Romans, it's not in double columns, it's one, it's one single column. And it's, it's meant to take all of the things out of it that we've been adding to it for all this time. And I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying that it's unhelpful. I'm glad we have versification, otherwise I'd be saying, "Well, turn to Romans and we'll try to get all in the same place here. I'm really thankful that we can say turn to Romans 1, uh, verses 15 to 17. But these divisions get in our way a lot of times. In verse 15, we find Paul is eager to preach the gospel. And uh, as I said last week, the gospel is really necessary for the church in every stage of its development. A lot of times, as I said last week, that uh, many people think of the gospel as something that is necessary for a person to come to faith. And then after that, then we need to, to, to move on to other things Uh, But I think I made my case plenty well last week uh, that we need the gospel in every stage of its development. And uh, again, I want to make a little bit more noise about that. In Romans 10, Paul tells us, and we read this passage just a little while ago in our service. He tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ, that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? Well, we think of Jesus in terms of His earthly ministry. He comes and at the beginning of His earthly ministry, what does He say? He says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And of course, Jesus is embracing the Old Testament. He's proclaiming the Old Testament. He's explaining the Old Testament Scriptures. And He is fulfilling the Old Testament Scriptures. He is actually the embodiment, if you will, of the Old Testament. And we could say that He is the embodiment of the New Testament too. So I guess broadly speaking, we could say the word of Christ is the whole Bible because the whole Bible is about is about Christ's person and work and accomplishments, is it not? But more narrowly speaking, and I think Paul is speaking more narrowly in that passage, that we could say the gospel or that the word of Christ is the gospel itself uh, for the same reason. Uh, that the gospel centers and focuses on Christ. That's why I said in my pastoral prayer, you know, w- w- preaching on Sunday morning and on Wednesday nights and whenever it takes place needs to focus and center on Christ. Does it not? It's imperative to our faith that it that it does. So faith comes from hearing the gospel proclaimed and faith comes from hearing the word of God taught and applied. But faith, you know, we we could say that faith comes from doing what we're doing right now. What are we doing right now? Faith comes from this. But faith also grows as a result of this, doesn't it? You know, I was reminded really just a few moments ago in, in the service that we need to be patient with the people we're reaching out to. I'm not sure what made me think of that, but while we were, we were singing, I was thinking of some folks that have been reaching out to and folks that maybe I was hoping to see this morning in the service and we're not seeing them. They're not here. But, you know, faith is a lot like a little plant. You take a seed and you put it in the ground, don't you? And then you wait. There's really not much you can do. We can't see the the, the operation that takes place beneath the soil. We, We can't see that work that's going on there. In fact, we, we really can't see it until, until it, it, it penetrates through the surface of the earth. But even when it does that, it's very frail, isn't it? It's very frail and it's very weak. Now, I'm the last guy that wants to talk about having any expertise with plants. Offer me your plants and I will murder them. Um I would like to say Tammy's better at this, but she's really not better at this. (laughs) You could use either one of us to murder your plants, if you like. Uh, We are both capable and very able to do that. But what I do know is the plants require sunlight, don't they? And they require water. Uh, That's the part we haven't got down yet. They do require water. Uh, Not enough water, they they wither and die. Too much water, and I'm told the roots... uh, Rot. Am I correct on that? Uh, someone else can tell me. Uh, but they also require the nutrients of the soil. Do they not? And the gospel is God's vessel upon which he supplies the nutrients. Because our faith is very much like it. Remember what Jesus said in the parable of the sower. He said the kingdom was like a man who went and sowed seed on the soil. You know. And what is the seed in that in that passage? The seed is the word of God, isn't it? He's throwing the seed down, and then the seed grows down into the soil. And it's the gospel, actually. It's the gospel proclamation. The the, the sermons that we're handing out and passing out. The sermons that we're putting up online. uh, This is sowing that seed. And uh, that seed goes out into into people's hearts and, and, and grows, if you will. There's conception. But actually, there's a long period between conception and consecration, isn't there? And it's a long journey that requires the nutrients of God's gospel, the nutrients of the word of Christ. So we we can see why Paul is eager to go to Rome. He's eager to go to Rome that he might preach the gospel to them, that he might be used by God in order to supply those nutrients that their budding faith requires. Now, when we move to verse 16, we can see the continuity between verses 15 and 16, because Paul is not only eager uh, to go to Rome to preach the gospel there, he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. He is, if you will, eager and unashamed. He is eager and unashamed. Now, a question may quickly arise, we might ask ourselves, why would Paul be ashamed of the gospel? We may ask that question, but I think as soon as we do ask that question, if we bother to ask that question, I think we're able to quickly answer our own question, aren't we? Because anybody who has attempted to share the gospel has experienced at least some level of anxiety over what's going to happen when you do share the gospel. You know the butterflies in your stomach that you get as you get ready to do it? And the questions you ask, okay, what are they going to think of me when I lay this on them? Are they going to think ill of me? Uh, are they going to reject me? Are they going to make fun of me? I mean, in our present culture, people are so concerned about what others think of them. And as believers, we're not completely insulated from this, are we? I mean, I care what people think of me. I can't say, it. sometimes you might say, well, I don't care what others think of Heck, <laughs> we sure do care, don't we? We care what others think of us. And, and here the, we're at a crossroad. I mean, we ask in our heart, okay, if I share the gospel with somebody, will they reject me? Will they make fun of me? Um, will they think that I am, you know, like some kind of Bible thumper? or Will they think that I'm like some kind of holy roller or something? Well, the answer to that is Maybe. Uh, maybe they might. I've shared the gospel before and not had that, that reaction at all. But one thing I can say is if you're going to make a habit of sharing the gospel, well, then the answer goes from maybe to definitely. Definitely. Some will receive you that way. Uh, they, they will. They're going to make fun of you. Uh, they're going to call you names. They're going to say things. Uh, uh, and this is why following Jesus requires self um, self-denial. I mean, you know, if I listen to self in these instances, and if I listen to self in these situations, I'm not going to share the gospel. Self is going to say, hey, this does not sound like a very good idea. Jesus said that the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. That's John 7, 7. And in the upcoming messages i have already been alluding. I mean, if you know a little bit about Romans, you know, verses 18 and following. I mean, we're really going to be feeling the force of this as Paul gives what we call the bad news of the gospel. And don't think that you can skip that. People are skipping that. They're skipping that all over the place. They're not sharing the bad news of the gospel. They're trying to avoid the offense of the cross. The gospel doesn't make any sense. If you just go up to somebody and say, you need a Savior, what are they going to say to you? A Savior saved from what? What do I need a Savior? For? The whole thing will fall flat unless you spend some time covering the bad news. And really, quite frankly, many people in our culture aren't even really ready for the bad news. I mean, we really, I think, need to go back to Genesis 1, 2, or 3. Because we can't assume that 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 our, our neighbors know really very much about the Bible at all. But at any rate, we have to get to the bad news. And, well, the bad news, quite frankly, is kind of offensive. I don't like to offend people. I, I like people to like me, and I, I like to make people feel encouraged and good. So there's always this temptation. I'm speaking of myself here. There's always this temptation to be a little bit backward, uh, to uh, sidestep things, to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, I guess, in, I must confess at different times I've been ashamed of the gospel. I have a sneaking suspicion I'm not alone. Am I correct in that? How do we overcome this fear? Well, we have to overcome this fear because we can withhold the message. It's, it's not loving to do that. How do we overcome the fear? Well, I'm going to start with a twofold answer. One is understanding and the other one is belief. We'll start with the understanding um, and, and let me start with that. Is, I mean, we have to understand this text we've come to. And, and let me start by saying something about the structure of our text. And I'll tell you why. I found this to be really, really helpful. If you look, okay, verses 15, we see Paul's eagerness, right? And at the beginning of verse 16, we see his unashamedness, if you will. He is eager and unashamed. Now, let's connect this thing together because we have all these phrases here and it's, it's really dense so we could ask ourselves this question okay Paul is eager and unashamed to preach the gospel why why verse 16 because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone be- who believes alright well then we can ask another question well how is it the power of God for salvation uh, for everyone who believes well verse 17 answers because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith Now, I say this is helpful because we're seeing a little bit of the structure. We're seeing how these these phrases are hooked together, if you will. But it's still murky, probably. And one of the reasons it's still murky is because, listen, if we don't understand these phrases, then we're not going to understand this whole thing. And um, the name, I mean, the phrases I'm talking about are like the power of God. What does Paul mean by that? What does he mean by salvation? What does he mean by belief? What does he mean by the righteousness of God? What does he mean by that strange phrase, from faith for faith? You know, this week, in terms of my own personal study and preparing for this morning, I didn't just write a sermon based on the knowledge I have of these phrases. I could have, but I didn't. And one of the reasons I didn't is because I wanted to approach these phrases I wanted to approach them afresh. I've studied them many times. I wanted to approach them afresh, almost coming to the text as if I didn't know anything about it. And asking the basic questions of the text What does Paul mean by the power of God? What does he mean by salvation? What does he mean by faith? What does he mean by the righteousness of God? What does he mean from faith for faith? What does he mean by these things? And I will tell you what, I've been blessed enormously. I mean, I can't wait to share the things with you I've learned from the Psalms. This things that have this has opened up so much. So I I say this so that when we go through this and you say, well, I've heard all this before. I've heard it many times. Don't check out on me here. Uh, Don't don't check out on me here. Don't don't do that with this text, because there's so much more than any of us in this room understand about this text. Let's start, let's let's briefly look at each one of these. Let's start with the power of God. What is meant by the power of God? You know, here, here Paul is talking about God's very own strength and divine ability. You know, in the Greek, the, the word that he uses is this word, dunamis. I share it with you because if you listen to dunamis, and you think of the word dynamite, they kind of sound alike. And that's because the word dynamite comes from this word, dunamis. Uh, Paul is speaking about this this awesome power is what he's talking about this act of power this extraordinary supernatural power this divine strength if you will this divine uh, ability that god uh, that god is, uh, possesses and in scripture god often demonstrates this especially in terms of delivering his people we might think of exodus chapters 1 through 14 where israel has fallen into slavery uh, their, their lives are, are just under the harsh and cruel oppression of Pharaoh. And they cry out to God and God delivers them. And he delivers them through a series of plagues, doesn't he? Through a series of demonstrations of extraordinary power. We might say that he delivers them by way of his strong, outstretched arm. And we can think of all of those various plagues, and especially the, the miracle where the Red Sea is parted and, and Israel marches out on, on dry ground. And one of the reasons that God records this for us is so that each of us can look to the pages of Scripture and we can get a glimpse of His strength, that we might trust in it, that we might rely on it, that we might depend on His abilities. And when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we find God stepping into time, space, and history in the person of Jesus Christ. And what is He busy doing? Restoring sight to the blind. Calming the sea. Which is something in the Psalms, uh, in many places, that is ascribed of God. He calms the seas, the raging seas. There Jesus calms the sea. He he heals the, the lepers and those who are paralyzed. Uh, he heals all of these various kinds of diseases, if you will. And on the th- he, he, he dies on the cross and on the third day by the by the strong outstretched arm of God, by the power of God, he, he, he is raised on the third day, isn't he? So there's the power of God. These are all manifestations of the power of God. The next term that we find in our text is salvation. And I think this may be one of the easiest ones for us to hear, but I'm not going to assume so, because I actually, quite frankly, hear a lot of confusion over this issue of salvation. Now, when you think of salvation... Salvation should be thought of both in a negative sense and a positive sense. There's this negative aspect to it, if you will, and there's a positive aspect to it. The negative aspect, I think, is one that we maybe have a tendency to think of. Uh, And I think that a lot of people will think of salvation as really uh, strictly uh, being spared the final judgment, if you will. Uh, But there's much more to salvation than that. There's a present aspect of salvation. We could say that negatively salvation is deliverance from sin and death and ruin and misery. Or we could go a little bit further and bring that kind of down out of abstraction. And we could say that it's deliverance from darkness, from hopelessness, from despair, from slavery, uh, which would I have in my notes or in parentheses addiction. When the Bible talks about slavery, often it's talking about addiction. No, selfishness, arrogance, pride, and all of these kinds of things—and again, there's a common denominator among this, as I've already said. What is the common denominator in all of this? It's unbelief. So we could say, in a negative sense, if we wanted to talk real simply, and I think this would be helpful, because someone may say, "Well, I don't feel hopeless. I don't feel—I uh, don't feel despairing. I don't actually. Life is pretty good. You know, I mean, that poor woman got out through Tanger outlets in an hour and fifteen minutes. I was in an hour and out there in twenty minutes. Life is good." Well, salvation is deliverance from unbelief. You want to offend God? Call Him a liar. You will offend Him. And salvation is deliverance from the many times that we have called Him a liar with our unbelief. And there isn't a single one of us that's going to, that's insulated from that, is there? That's the negative aspect of it. How about the positive aspect? Well, positively, salvation brings healing, righteousness, life, recovery, light, hope, freedom, selflessness, and humility, and things like that. These are things that we all desire, aren't they? Salvation brings these things. So if we start to put this together, we have the power of God For salvation, and we can say that it's the strength and divine activity of bringing men and women out of sin, out of death, out of misery, out of darkness, out of hopelessness, out of selfishness, out of enslavement, out of pride, and the list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? But it doesn't stop there, you see, because salvation also is the power of God for the ushering of these same individuals into healing. Righteousness, life, recovery, light, hope, freedom, selflessness and humility. and things like these, which we also deeply desire, do we not? We also deeply desire. When we see people hurting, we want to help them, don't we? We want to see them get help. Now, if you're actually engaged with me here this morning, you're feeling the wonder and joy of this. I think at least you're starting to feel the wonder and joy of this. I mean, there's so much darkness and hopelessness around, isn't there? It's everywhere that we look and turn. And we even look to our own hearts. That's where we can start. And we see the dysfunction there. How do we get this? How do we get this? That's the next phrase. It would be belief or faith. I mean, Paul, if we go back to verse 15, Paul is eager to share the gospel. Verse 16, he is unashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, correct? But notice the next phrase here. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. And again, there's massive confusion over this one. I mean, I hear people talk about faith in ways that strongly suggest that they believe that it's faith that saves them. Has anybody ever heard conversations like that? They speak about faith as though faith saves them. I'm going to make a statement right now that would be considered heretical in many circles. I'm going to say this. Faith doesn't save you. But people go, say, what? Well, faith faith didn't step into time, space, and history. Faith did not live a perfect life. Faith did not get nailed to a cross. Faith didn't suffer the agony of God's wrath and perish under it. Faith was not uh, buried in the tomb. Faith did not raise on the third day. Faith is not exalted at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Jesus is. Faith doesn't save us. Jesus does. Faith is not the Savior. Well, someone say, "Well, wait a second. Paul tells us that we're saved through grace through faith, right? Yes, faith connects us to the Savior. But let's not confuse our categories here. We do It's a terrible thing to do. It'll lead you into an awful mess if you confuse these categories. Faith connects us. I use the lights. I like to use the lights as an as a, as a, um, example of this. You know, when we were remodeling this room, I took that last section of lights down. It used to be hooked to that section of lights that were in the other room. One of the first things that I did was I turned the lights off before I did that. When I turned the switch off, they quit. Lighting. You say, well, wow, Rick, that's one of the brightest things you, you've said this morning. Why did they quit? Because they were disconnected from the source. You see the wires; they hook them up. That's the faith, if you will, if you want to think about it. What's the source? God's the source. Christ is the source of our salvation. We're saved. We're saved by Christ. But we're connected to Him by faith. So, without faith, nothing that I'm talking about is going to benefit you at all. In fact, without faith, what I'm talking about is just going to get you into more trouble if you reject it. Faith hooks us up. What is saving faith? When Paul uses a phrase to everyone who believes, he's talking about what we call saving faith. And saving faith is confident trust in the work and person and accomplishments of Christ. It's a confident trust that where a person says, you know something I see, I now see, I see, Lord, you're able to you're able to take me out of this hopelessness, out of this addiction, out of this slavery, out of this darkness, out of this state of unbelief, out of this despair, out of all of this stuff. And you're able to deliver me to healing and recovery and righteousness and holiness. And you're able to bring me into uh, into your kingdom. I have confident trust of this. If if that describes you, you have saving faith. That's what saving faith looks like. There's a parable that Jesus has that that says that encompasses this. This is one of my favorite parables right here. It's from Matthew 13 and verse 44. And it's just one single verse. If you want to get one of the parables down, here's one. It's only one verse. You can get it down this afternoon. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and covered up then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's what saving faith looks like. God opens the eyes so we can see Jesus and he opens the ears so we can hear his voice. We don't see him like we see each other. We see him with the eyes of the heart. But then we see things that are in the way between us and him. And he is with the gift of faith that God gives us, we see that He is so valuable that we we get rid of whatever is in between. Whatever is in between us and Jesus has to go. Just like this man, he, he finds this treasure. Well, listen, boy, I've got to have this treasure. We're liquidating everything. We're selling the whole ranch, and we're buying this. That's what saving faith looks like. It's not begrudging, it's joyous. Look what we have. Look what we're going to gain. Get rid of it. Look, look where we're going to be when we have this. The man discovers a treasure that is so worth having, he gives up everything to have it. That's what saving faith looks like. And this leads us to the next phrase. And really, before we get to the righteousness of God, I mean, I'm stacking a bunch of stuff up here and I got a pile going on. Maybe we ought to stop and kind of review where we are. Paul, if we go back to verse 15, he's eager, right? He's eager. In verse 16, he's unashamed. He's eager and he's unashamed to preach the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the utensil, utensil, we might call it a utensil, if you will, upon which God works His saving power to save us, right? From unbelief and darkness and all of the like. And it is also the utensil, if you will, upon which God works His saving power to bring us into joy and hope and freedom and all of the like and righteousness. And the one who receives all of this is the one who uh, receives Christ with saving faith, like the man who sells everything to receive Jesus. Uh, okay, they, uh, we got it. Now let's ask, us, let's ask us some housekeeping questions. Let's just ask this question. Uh, how does all this work? How does God do this? And Paul answers that question with the phrase, the righteousness of God. If we're asking the question, OK, how does this work? We're, we're ready to study this phrase, the, the, the righteousness of God. Well, what is the righteousness of God? And I love to answer this question with what I call my cross and stick figure diagram. Some of you are smiling because you've seen the cross and the stick figure diagram. And it's a cross. I can handle that. I'm not a very good artist. You know that, don't you? I'm not a very good artist, but, you know, I draw a cross and then I draw a stick figure because that's really all I can draw. And um, I I, there's a young lady here in town that's working on a a more professional version of this for us. Um, But there's the cross and there's the stick figure. Now, uh, Jesus, you know, uh, Jesus comes. He lives that perfect life. He comes uh, without any kind of sin and thought, word, or deed. He walks this perfect life, and He comes to offer that life on the cross, right? In order to satisfy God's justice, because God's justice is crying out for all of the sins that have been committed, correct? So Jesus offers His life. He offers this perfect, righteous life to the cross. Jesus comes to endure the punishment, uh, that we could not possibly begin to either imagine or endure ourselves. Uh, Jesus comes and steps in our place and endures it for us. And he hangs there in absolute agony, taking the punishment we deserve. Now God's justice is satisfied and uh, because God has punished Jesus instead of the believer, correct? He's punished Jesus instead of our stick figure, if you will, who's in our, our drawing. He's punished Jesus instead of us. Now, most of us don't think our sins are a big deal. Paul's going to try to change that in verses 18 through chapter 3 as we study those verses. But um, when we look to the cross, we see that our, even the slightest and smallest sin is a really big deal to God, isn't it? When we look to the, the, the suffering of the cross, it's a really big deal to God. Um, Jesus dies to take, to take these penalties away and This is where many gospel presentations stop. We say well okay Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins. And that's where a lot of gospel presentations stop, but we shouldn't stop there, as I've shared with you many, many times. You think of the cross and the stick figure. You know, you know there's two arrows on that diagram, right? We have the cross, there's nobody hanging on the cross, it's just a cross. I want to be clear. There's the cross, there's the stick figure. Okay, the stick figure is the man whose eyes have been opened. He's a person who uh, sees his sin debt before God. He's offended God. He has to get right with God, but he sees he sees Christ. He sees Christ as his Savior. He comes to Christ. He repents of his sins, and there's an arrow going from the stick figure to the cross. That, of course, that arrow that arrow represents the sins of the believer repenting, going to the cross where Jesus takes them away. Remember, Jesus says as he's hanging there at the very end, it's finished. What's finished? The atonement. God's justice is satisfied with what Jesus has done. Okay, but we don't stop there because there's another arrow in the diagram, isn't there? There's an arrow that goes from the cross to to the sinner, to the stick figure. And that's that perfect righteousness of Jesus. The perfect righteousness of Jesus, which is accredited to the account of the sinner. Now, all of the filth has been taken away. All of that stuff, everything that's messed up is taken and put on Jesus and it's taken away. And all of the perfection of Jesus is given to the stick figure. It's a double exchange, if you will. A double exchange. The believer's sins go to Jesus. His perfect righteousness is given to the believer. Now, God is able to offer us complete forgiveness. He's not going to be so unjust as to punish Jesus and then punish us as well. And he's also given us the righteousness that a relationship with him requires. Now... um, I would say that this is the first part of overcoming our shame and embarrassment over the gospel as we experience it, is that we understand the gospel, that we understand the text. But the second part of overcoming shame is believing it. We can't just understand it because it's possible to understand it. It's possible to be able to, really to understand it at a high degree and not believe any of it. There was a, uh, I had a seminary professor that was he used to quote from a uh, from a commentator, and I don't remember his name. Uh, he didn't really recommend that we go and buy any of his commentaries, uh, but he would quote from him all the time, and he'd say, you know, this guy he doesn't believe a word of it, but he's always spot on with it. I mean, he'll say, well, this is what the text says. This is what Paul is saying, or this is what James is saying, or this is what whoever is saying. The author doesn't believe any of it, but he's spot on with his with his understanding of it. That is indeed what the text says. It, we can understand, but not believe. Notice that last phrase, from faith for faith. You know, that's a strange little phrase, and it's it's, it's translated in a few different ways, and it's been interpreted in a variety of ways. I, I take Calvin's interpretation of it, which basically Calvin Calvin says that okay, we receive the gospel by faith. And that we grow in it by faith. We receive it by faith and we grow in it by faith. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear it say beginning and ending in faith, which is kind of saying uh, the same thing. Uh, And as I've said already, faith connects us to Jesus. Understanding is not enough. Uh, We must believe. Now, along these lines, during his earthly ministry... Jesus said something that I think is really scary. and Maybe you've experienced some, some trepidation as you've read these verses before. Uh, from Mark 8.38 is uh, one such place where Jesus says this, quote, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels i'll read it to you again whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful nation generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels now we might read a verse like this and we might think to ourselves, okay jesus is saying something like this okay i think i got it you're saying all right if you're ashamed of me i'm going to be ashamed of you and all right, I'll show you. If you're ashamed of me, then all right, that's true. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Uh, we, we might say something like that in, in, in our hearts. And uh, we might even go as far as say, OK, you're ashamed of me. So I'll be I will show you I'll be ashamed of you, too. So there we we may think things like that. But that's to ascribe a, a sinful reaction to Jesus, which we shouldn't do. Jesus is not like that. Uh, He's not reacting to rejection the way we typically react to rejection. What Jesus is saying, in essence, is this. Whoever is ashamed of me does not really believe me. Nor does he believe my message. Therefore, it's not going to benefit him at all. And I share this with you because... Shame and embarrassment over the gospel is evidence of unbelief. quite frankly, it's just what it is. It's evidence of unbelief. In fact, to the measure that we experience shame or even a lack of eagerness for the gospel, to the same measure we're experiencing unbelief. A couple rhetorical questions as I move to close here. Could it be that we're trying to avoid anything that ca- cause us shame or embarrassment? In terms of our personal witness, could it be that's what we're up to? Could it be that we're backpedaling, watering down and sidestepping the gospel because there's an element of shame and embarrassment in our hearts? Could that be what we're up to? we we'll have to look at each of our hearts prayerfully and ask the Lord to Speak to us, but last week I said one of the most persuasive things about gospel preaching is the impact that the gospels had on the preacher. Remember me saying that? Some of you remember me saying that last week. The same thing is true of us, all of us. It's shyness, shame, embarrassment regarding the gospel is a is overcome by the gospel. When we suffer from shyness and, and uh, shame and embarrassment, or we get the willies, whatever you want to put it, it that, that can be a very grievous thing. You know, at, at Paps funeral, I mentioned, I, I used myself as an example. My, my grandfather got the worst evangelism I, I've ever done. Why? It was so difficult to share the gospel with him. Why? Because we know each other so very well. My goodness. How do you overcome that? We overcome it with the gospel. We, we overcome it with the gospel is, you know, as we experience these things from day to day and hour to hour, and we will, you may be fine sharing the gospel with this person over here or speaking over here, but then you go to this person over there and oh my goodness, a door opens where you should say something and you don't. Why? You clam up. Why? It's that shyness again, that shame, that, that lack of eagerness, that we're, we're simply afraid to take the risk. And we care so much about what others think of us that we're afraid to share the gospel with them. Well, what do we do? Well, unbelief is sin. And how do we handle sin? We take it to the Lord, right? We call on God's strength to repent of it and we apply the gospel to it. And here's the good news, everybody. I want to leave you on a high note here. He'll increase your boldness. I can share. I can tell you for sure. He's increased mine. He'll increase your boldness. His arms are wide open for us. Regardless of what the sins may be, He's right there. And as we repent of these things, don't try to do this on your own. Don't try to impress Him. Call on Him. Ask Him to take these things away. And that shyness and eagerness and shame will give over to deep conviction and we'll find ourselves eager and unashamed. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we've worked through a really tough spot. Um, We're working through things that are very close to our hearts. We're working through things that are painful, and I know they are indeed, they have been very painful to me and my. In my witness to you and in my service to you, Father, these have been some of the most painful things for me. And I know it's true of many others in this room. Father, um, we've gone through a a text of Scripture that is really, it takes a lot to understand. Father, we look to you for grace, both to have understanding. We look to you, Father, for grace that we would believe uh, what we understand by your grace. And we pray, Father, for that faith and gift of repentance that we would just admit, that we just, as we experience areas of shame and embarrassment, that we would just bring that to you, and that we would ask you, Father, to deal with that sin and these sins, the way you deal with all the others. Father, we're not proud of these things. We don't even like talking about them much. But, Father, your word is such that as we read through it, we encounter them, and we deal with them as they come. And Father, we're thankful that you have given us a word. We see the Apostle Paul. He's eager. He's unashamed. And Father, uh, Lord, we desire to be, uh, we really do desire to be also eager and unashamed to serve you. And we need your grace for these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.